Guys, apologies too. I'm really phlegmy this morning. I'm almost always phlegmy, but I'm particularly so this morning. So if I pause, please overlook that. On a more serious note, uh, Ravi Zacharias was certainly one of my all-time favorites, heroes of the faith. If you knew his story, he grew up in India, attempted suicide, uh, and in the midst of recovering from that, came to faith in Christ, gets an education, and really becomes just one of the preeminent voices for the gospel as an apologist, not just here in the states of the Western Hemisphere, but all over the world. Of course, he died the end of last year, and after his death, accusations rose about an immoral lifestyle. And like other things, my incredulity, when I heard the initial charges, I told Kathy, there's no way, not possible, it's no way. But of course, a formal investigation paid for by his own ministry followed up, interviewed numerous witnesses, numerous victims, gathered information from his cell phones and computers, and there was certainly no doubt that he had led a double lifestyle. He had a hidden lifestyle. He'd hidden it very well for a number of years. Christians who've respected and looked up to him were slash are devastated, which is bad enough. What's the fallout, though, on those who don't claim Christ when the face, if you will, of Christian apology for decades is found to have lived a hypocritical lifestyle. More recently and nearer, nearer to home here, uh, prominent pastor Carl Lentz of Hillsong Church in New York stepped down after his mistress of some extended time uh, went public that he'd been having an affair with her for some time. He was a rock star, the movie stars and lots of popular people called him their pastor. Bill Hybels, um, Bill Hybels goes back quite a few decades. Some, some people, some younger people may not remember who Bill Hybels is, but arguably he was the father of both the seeker-sensitive church movement as well as the megachurch movement. Hybels was in the process of passing the reins to Willow Creek Church uh, when accusations rose about his behavior as well, inappropriate behavior, numerous uh, people, women saying the same things. Uh, radically affected that church's ability to go on. I don't think there's a single leader left there today that was there when Hybels was preparing to exit. These claims also uh, related to the last election. How many of you either saw on YouTube or heard uh, prophets of God tell you and there was no equivocation that Donald Trump would be in the White House for another four years. In fact, the one I'm thinking of, the, the interviewer says, now are you sure about this? Absolutely sure. God has spoken and Donald Trump is president for the next four years. Those claims, claims like that, have left egg on the faces, of course, of those who made the predictions. But what's the fallout again, especially on those who don't know Christ, What's the fallout in them when these guys that say they represent God and Christ have made these predictions that absolutely did not come true? These revelations, their fallout, are great embarrassments to those involved, to be sure. 
thinking one of the guys who made a prediction is sorry all over the place online, apparently had a, a, a massive following. Um, so perhaps he did the right thing in apologizing. I, I was a little chagrined when he had said publicly, hey, I blew it, and I'm going to step down from ministry. And, and then I realized, well, actually, he's just changing his label. He's rebranding, and he's starting right back over. If you look for him online, Jeremiah Johnson by name, he's got a new ministry, and he's ready to help you grow in Christ, a guy who, who thought he was speaking for God and wasn't. That's a concern, isn't it? What, what are the ramifications related to the God these folks have been representing? What about the name and the reputation of God for these folks, whether it's moral failure, whether it's predictions that don't come true? What's the fallout? What's the effect of the fallout of those who have been the public faces of the gospel, of evangelicalism, of the Christian faith? How do others see God and Christ based on these notable failures? We're in the seventh message in the series, Mercy Waiting, Lessons in Deuteronomy. And if you talk about the Old Testament, and especially any of the first five books of the Bible besides Genesis, I wanted to qualify Deuteronomy so it didn't put people off. Mercy waiting, that what you'll see in Deuteronomy, even in Deuteronomy, you'll see that God's mercy and grace is scattered throughout. Last time we were in Deuteronomy 5, we looked at the first two words of the ten words or the ten commandments. You remember it was have no other gods and have no other gods by way of idols. How have we been doing in the two weeks since at really identifying the idols of the heart? You remember we said we're too sophisticated, most of us, not all of us, to bow down to statues and paintings, but it doesn't mean we're not idolaters. And so really the, the issue became identifying the idols of the heart that we have. Uh, this is what God called Israel to do with their idols, the physical idols they found in the land as they went in. He said, destroy them, tear them down, dash them in pieces, burn them up, chop them down when they found idols in the land of promise. How are we doing it? Destroying, identifying, and, and really destroying, having done with the idols of the heart that we find for ourselves. Uh, today, we're going to turn to the third of the ten words, and we're going to look at the fact that God takes the use of his name very seriously, and so should we. And I think also what we'll find is if we take that third command, whether it's a negative, we could say don't do harm to God's name, or we see it as a positive, uh, bring honor to Jesus' name. What you'll find is we're blessed, just as Israel would be blessed as they honored or hallowed God's name, we will be too. That's the direction we're going this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up. This is Deuteronomy 5, verse 11. This is easy to read our text this morning. A lot of the lessons in Deuteronomy are hard because you're trying to put narratives into usable sections of text. This one's easy this morning. One verse, Deuteronomy 5, verse 11. <clears throat> Excuse me. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let me paraphrase this, and then we'll expand this a bit more paraphrase don't lift up and when it says don't take the thought is in the hebrew it's lift up it's draw attention to it's to raise god's name where other people see it you've drawn attention to god and his name don't lift up god's name in a way that's false to who god is or what god does don't attach god by name to anything that's false or less glorious than god is 
we could state it positively like this, only use God's name in ways consistent with his character, his purpose, his stated plans, only speak truth when bringing God into the picture or when we enter into God's presence. So you remember if you're a literature fan, Willie Shakespeare said a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Sort of in the field of roses or plants, it wouldn't matter. It's still the same thing. That does not hold for names in the scripture. Names are significant. Names are meant to communicate something important. Names are also given by someone in authority to name someone under their authority, as we'll see here in just a second. So God's name is important because the name, biblically, the name stands for the person. And that's important to remember. It's not just that you've used a name. It's that when you're using the name, you're connecting specifically and directly to the person you're naming. That's particularly important when we're talking about God. So God's names, and we'll, we'll talk about some, one name particular because God does. We'll talk about a few others as well. But whether it's God's personal name or if it's other versions of God's name modified that descriptively say something about him, we're meant to be careful in how we use God's name and what we attach to God's name. And again, the person is named by the one in authority over them. So this is important. When you read the creation story, so if you're in Genesis 1, God says we're going to make man. And in the Hebrew, what's, what's God going to make? He's going to make Adam. He's going to make Adam. God gives Adam his name. And then when God creates the animals, what does Adam do? Well, he's the head of creation, so he gives them their name. And when Eve comes along, what does Adam do? He gives her her name because he is the authority God's placed ultimately over the earth. In God's case, who is going to give God a name? Because there's no authority over God, is there? So God has to name himself. God has to tell us what his name is. And this comes up, and I would encourage you to turn to Exodus 3, because this is where God gives us his proper name. There's lots of Hebrew words that get translated God one way or another, but this is very particular to God. So if you remember the setting, Exodus 3, you remember Moses, a little Jewish baby, born in Egypt, raised in Pharaoh's household, kills a man when he's about 40 years old because he thinks he's going to deliver his brothers the Jews, and instead he has to flee Egypt. He goes into the wilderness of Midian, becomes a shepherd for about another 40 years, gets married, raises a family. Near the end of that 40 years in the wilderness, Sees a bush on fire on a hill. That's quite a sight. I better go check that out. He goes up. God starts speaking to him. And God tells him there, Moses, you're my man. I'm sending you down. You're going to bring my people back. You're going to bear my name to Pharaoh. You're going to bring my message to my people. And you're going to lead them out to the land of promise. So in the context of that conversation, the back and forth, this is what Moses asks God. So Exodus 3, verses 13 through 15 Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord... The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, 
the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So that name, I am, is meant to communicate that um, God is self-existent. God is eternal. And guys, nothing else and no one else can make that claim. So this is a great descriptive name God gives himself because he just says, I'm the one that's always been. There's no one before me. Everything that has existence came from me. So I am the eternal one. We could phrase it that way. I am the eternal one. I don't have any beginning. I won't have any end. So I am is a short, good handle for this name of God. I am that I am. I've always been. I will always be. In this text, in, move, in speaking to Moses, God moves from a generic term for God. So uh, verse 14, if you look at that, God said to Moses, God there is Elohim. God says to Moses, I am. So Elohim is used, I think it's 2,200 times or so in the Old Testament. When you read Genesis 1 in the creation account, it's Elohim. God created the heavens and the earth. So in this context of talking to Moses about his name, Elohim says to Moses, I am. I am the existent one, and that's the name I'm going to be remembered for forever. When you get to verse 15, look at your Bibles if you've got that open. Say to this people, the people of Israel, the Lord, and again, Lord there is all caps. So this is just a transliteration. This is an easy way for us to speak of God without actually using his name. So the Lord, the God of your fathers. So Lord in all caps is just a way we represent what's called the tetragrammaton, so the four Hebrew letters that make up God's proper name. Yod, Hav, Vav, and He. That gets translated as I am. That, that is used, the tetragrammaton, Lord, all caps in your Bible. That's the way it's translated. Used about 5,500 times. I want to read you a note from the Net Bible. It's a pretty new, relatively new English translation. And usually most people read it for the translator notes. And this is a translator note related to this passage. So it says, When God used the verb to express his name, I am, he used this form saying, I am. When his people refer to him as Yahweh, which is the third person masculine singular form, that's the answer to a test question you'll have later. <laughs> third person masculine singular form of the same verb, they say, he is. So God says, I am, and Yahweh is a way of saying, he is. So who's your God? He is the eternally existent one, the one who has no beginning, will have no end. That's our God. He is. When you take the four Hebrew letters that we translate Yahweh, and Yahweh's my preferred version of this, but if you're from old school, if you grew up reading a King James Bible, you would have read Jehovah. Now it's coming from the same letters, from the same word group, but in Jehovah, we take the letters for Yahweh and we add the vowel sounds from the Hebrew Adonai and we get Jehovah. And when, uh, when the Hebrews translated, the Yah sound either gets transliterated in English, either, could go either way, Y, Yah, or J, Jah. So Yahweh is the Yah sound as Y, 
And Jehovah is the same Hebrew little, little mark uh, that gets translated Jah. But in either case, the Yah of Yahweh, the Yah is God. Yahweh, the Yah is God, or Jehovah, the Jah on the front end is God. God's identified by numerous other words and descriptions. So Elohim is, is a, a fairly constant, about 2,200 times. Uh, Yahweh, Elohim, almost 4,000 times. Uh, Yahweh is modified to describe some element of God or His character or His work. So these are better known under the Jehovah tag, but Yahweh Jireh, God is my provider. Yahweh Rapha, God is my healer. Yahweh Nisi, God is my banner. And there's a, there's a link for the internet that's an easy way to go and just look that up and it'll show you all the names that you'll see descriptively of God throughout the scriptures. So whether we're thinking of God by his proper name Yahweh, which probably most of us don't use and don't think of, or by one of the several other descriptive terms, Israel was called... And we are meant to do the same thing today, to be careful in what we attribute to God, in how we think about Him, what we say about Him, and in what ways we do service in His name, or in what ways we represent Him and His name. How serious was, this, was God about this? Because the text says God will not hold Him guiltless, those who take His name in vain, those who bring vanity or attach vanity to His name. How serious a deal was this to God? So it was a big deal. Leviticus 24 tells the story, a very brief story, in which a man in the Hebrew camp in the wilderness used Yahweh's name to, to profane, to cuss, we would say. He brought vanity to God's name, and he was heard. And so the people who heard him took him and went to Moses and said, hey, this guy, he broke that third commandment. He, he used God's name in vain. What should we do? And Moses says, well, let's check with God. And so this is what God said to do. Take him out. Those of you who heard him, put your hands on him. And then stone him to death. Because he used God's name in a way God said don't do. So how big a deal is this? It's a big deal. Now, fast forward. When Yahweh shows up in the incarnation... So when the second person of the eternal trinity takes on our humanity, who names him? His parents don't name him, do they? Got a human mother, but he doesn't have a human father. So in Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21, an angel shows up to Joseph, Mary's betrothed, and says, uh, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, <clears throat> excuse me, the Father, God the Father, not Joseph and not Mary, gives Jesus his name. And how significant is Jesus' name? If he's God on earth, how significant is his name? Pretty significant. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We say in English, Jesus, and we're transliterating Jesus from the Greek. But if we go back to the Hebrew, it would be Joshua, or it would be Jehoshua. And the Yah on the front end of that is Yahweh again. So what does Jesus' name literally mean? 
His name means Yahweh saves. So in the incarnation, the second person of the eternal trinity comes and his name is Yahweh saves. So it's the same Yahweh from Exodus 3 and his mission is to bring salvation. So he's kept his eternal name because the front end of Jesus' name is meant to infer Yahweh. Yahweh has come and Yahweh saves. If you look in John's Gospel in John 6, you see this in the English, by the way. It's not always there directly. So you'd have to check the Greek manuscript to see because sometimes uh, we insert words for clarity's sake that aren't necessarily there in the Greek or Hebrew manuscripts. But for instance, if you go to John 6, in the bread of life discourse, four times Jesus says in the Greek, ego eimi, which is I am. I am the bread of life. And what's he saying? It's going straight back to Exodus 3. And in the Greek, he's saying the same thing that Moses was hearing or was recording in Exodus 3. I am. I am. I am. I am. Direct tie to Yahweh from Exodus 3. So in our day, Yahweh has made himself known by the name Jesus or Yahweh saves. Whether we think of God, Elohim, Yahweh from the Old Testament or Jesus in the New as those who are identified with God, we're called to be careful with the use of his name. We're to be careful with the use of his name. So what does it mean? What does it look like to bring vanity or to attach God's name to vanity? A vanity can be translated a number of ways. Ruined, false, useless is probably the most common. That's a phrase you'll see in Ecclesiastes. You know, that life on the earth ultimately has this useless or this futile element to it that you just can't get past. So we, we bring ruin, we bring something false, we make God's name useless. And to use God's name in vain means to attribute to God thoughts, words, actions that are false, that are not true of God. To use God's name in vain means to bring false thinking, deceptive motives, improper actions to our interaction with God, our worship of God, and our service in His name. And here's, this is another test question for you. You guys know there's no test, I hope, but... In case, first time, if you've been here, there's no test. <laughs> How do you know? I don't think this is a trick question, but maybe it comes across that way. How do I know if I'm taking God's name in vain? How do I know if I'm attaching vanity to God's name? And I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's the mantra of Lion and Lamb Church. You would need to read your Bible. You would need to read your Bible. And I say it for this reason. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 say this. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. In fact, God says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's the kind of distance between the way you tend to think and the way I think. That's how far removed the way I do things is from the way you do things. So guys, if we haven't taken our cues from God himself and his word, it's a given we're bringing vanity to his name because we're just bringing our own thoughts and we're bringing our own ways to whatever we're doing in God's name or as we think about him, it can't be otherwise 
because that's the way we're born. And unless our mind is renewed by the truth of God's word, we will bring vanity to God's name. It's another great reason to meditate, read, memorize, make God's word part of our thought processes. Otherwise, vanity is a given. I want to look at two different ways, sort of categories, vanity by what we do and then vanity by what we say. There's a story in 2 Samuel 12. And 2 Samuel 12 is following up on the narrative where King David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then has had her husband Uriah killed, murdered in warfare. And so the Nathan, Nathan the prophet of God, is addressing him in this passage and he's telling him, hey, your sin is not hidden. God knows all about this. But he says this at verse 14. He says, you have treated Yahweh, the Lord, with contempt. Now that's the ESV version. You have treated Yahweh with contempt. And you can read the passage later. There's a lot involved in this interaction. From the Masoretic text, if you read this in the King James, it says this. You have caused the enemies of Yahweh to treat Yahweh with contempt. You remember when David goes out as a youth to, to fight Goliath, he says, you've come to me with the sword and spear, but I've come to you what? I've come to you in the name of the living God. David is absolutely identified as warrior and king, as God's man. And God's man has now been found out to be guilty of adultery and murder. And God says, this is no small thing. He says, you've brought contempt on God and His name by what you do because you're associated with Him. Your association and then what you've done has brought contempt on God's name. Now that's not only true then. Listen to this. This is Romans 2. This is Paul, by the way, quoting Isaiah 52.5. This is Romans 2, and in the context, Paul is, Paul is making sure that Jews who are religious don't think they're okay with God. He's, uh, Romans 1, the Gentiles are guilty before God, but Romans 2, Jews are guilty before God too. He says, verse 24, the name of God is being blasphemed among the Gentiles. Why? Because of you. He said, you profess God, you say you're God's, you read the law, you say you're a law keeper, but you're not. And the way you're living your life, he says, is it's like you're blaspheming God's name among the Gentiles. This is all based on lifestyle. This is based on what was, was done. You brought blaspheme, you brought vanity to God's name. And for me, it's in this sense that Christ's name has been dishonored repeatedly when pastors and evangelists who proclaim the glories of God and the trustworthiness of Christ betray their own proclamation by the shameful way they treat others. And this has come up in spades. And guys, you know, we want to be very... I'm even careful in my own mind when I talk about this stuff. Uh, does anyone else in here sin? Uh, we want to be very careful that we don't throw stones at other people. We'll talk about this a little bit more at the end. But we want to be very careful that we're not just saying this is something that some other people, somebody out there does, some anonymous person or some person I don't know. We need to be careful. We're looking at our own hearts as we think about this. But the church 
you know, and some of this, I think, is God's house cleaning. And I think he's using the devil to clean his own house in part. But the church across the states in the West is in meltdown. I don't know if you guys keep up with the news, but we're in meltdown. And God's name has vanity attached to it again and again and again and again and again. Uh, the abuse of women and children in church settings by church leaders or abuse occurring under church leaders inadequately confronted is a big deal. This has been brought out of the closet. The Houston Chronicle did a two-part, two or three-part series a couple years ago just on several churches in the Southern Baptist denomination in the southeast part of the United States. And they found out, basically, abuse is rife and it's rarely adequately addressed. What does that do to the people that were abused, their families, the people that know or have heard what's gone on, a Christian suing each other in the public courts, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, don't do it. Take a hit. Take a loss before you take a brother to court. Why? Because it brings shame on Christ's name. Because Christians are arguing with Christians in the public sphere. It brings shame on Christ's name. I think this is a big one. Matthew 15, verses 8 through 9 uh, Jesus says there, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This is out of Isaiah, Old Testament. In vain do they worship me. Is it possible for us to come to worship God and be worshiping God in vanity? And guys, I think it's going on all the time. You can travel the United States, you can travel the globe today, and you can go to rock concert quality worship meetings. And they've got the best tech. They've got the paid musicians. And you would go in and you would say, this was a great worship time. So Jesus says, some people are coming and they're worshiping. They're saying the right things. But they're not living it. And if you look at any of the surveys, any of the research that's done on how do Christians live, I'm thinking of the United States here today, how do Christians live compared to non-Christians? You'll find there's not a dime's worth of difference. And, by the way, what you'll find, too, is in the generations coming up in evangelicalism today, and Kent's been teaching about this, they do not, by in large measure, they do not believe God's Word. They do not believe the ethical, the moral issues represented in Scripture are true, or are true today, or are true for us. So I think there's a lot of vanity being abused in Jesus' name just in Christians gathering to worship fruit of our lips, but not out of a heart that's connected to God and what he considers important. By the way, if you're the kind of driver who cuts people off in traffic, don't put a Jesus loves you bumper sticker on, <laughs> right? If you're an angry driver, do not do that. Jesus doesn't need that kind of PR. So <clears throat> if we think about our lifestyle, what we do, what we do, you know, it was a given. We have idols of the heart. We don't bow to statues, but we have idols of the heart. What, based on my lifestyle, what I do, how I live, where might I be bringing vanity to God's name, to Jesus' name, based on what I'm doing? It's worth considering, based on what I'm doing. We can also do it, of course, by what we say. Now, if I say to you, don't use God's name in vain, what's the first thing that pops to your mind? 
for most people it's cussing, right? God is damning someone or something because I said it. Or Jesus Christ is an epithet or an exclamation mark. I mean, that's a given. OMG, OMG this, OMG that. that, That's a given, right? That's vanity to God's name. Those things are given, but there's a host of other ways we can do the same thing without necessarily thinking of it. And by the way, I think before God that pagans who don't know God or Christ who abuse his name, I don't think that's near as serious a deal as Christians who bring vanity by our speech to God's name. So you could start with the modern prophets that assured us in the country Donald Trump would remain in the White House. Now, there's, by the way, there's been a lot of ink spilled. There's a lot of articles on this. Are these guys, are the Jeremiah Johnsons, are they the same thing as a false prophet out of the Old Testament? <clears throat> they said they spoke in God's name. They said, thus says the Lord effectively. Are they the same? Is that, is that quite the same? And there might be some distinctions. I think there probably are. We're not going to get into that. But people have gone up and they've said, God says this and God didn't say. And we want to be careful if we're representing God and we're saying God has said, make sure God said. So this is from Jeremiah 14, 14. And by the way, I think part of the dynamic here is this. These guys liked Donald Trump. They believed in what he was doing if they didn't like his persona. And they wanted to see him in another four years. And they believed that would be best for the nation. And the passage I'm reading you, Jeremiah 14, in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah is saying, guys, judgment is coming and you're going down. And the false prophets are saying, you're not going down. And those folks that went to Babylon, they're going to come right back. This, what he's saying, that's a lie. That's wrong. Because they didn't want it. Because God was saying and doing something that they didn't want to buy into. That's not my idea, Lord, of what, what I want to see around the corner. So that must be false. But in the context there, God said through Jeremiah, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I didn't send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, the deceit of their own minds. That's almost a definition of vanity to God's name, that verse out of Jeremiah. So so I could stand up and say, God has said, and I don't mean God, I'm quoting the scripture verse, I'm not. I'm saying God has said like a prophet, and if God hasn't said, sit down, stay seated. There's also this, though, declaring things about God that simply are not true. Now, Christians do this as well as non-Christians. So if I meet with someone and they say, <clears throat> you've ever heard this, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. Well, part of that's right, right? God is loving. God is love, First John. God is love. But what they've said is, is a lie, and it's false because God has said otherwise. They don't know what's true of God. So they're using their mind and their thoughts. And this goes on all the time, doesn't it? Especially in popular culture. I, this is what I think about God, so this must be what's true about God. And it's like, nope, it's not. So we want to be careful what we tell other people about God also. So we can bring vanity by simply saying things of him that are not true. Here's a couple that may not come to mind. When Christians say, and I don't mean as a prophet, God told me. God said. I always cringe just a little bit 
And it's not because I don't think God can tell you something. He's spoken absolutely in his word, but I've had times where I'm sure God put a, a thought in my mind, put a word in my mind. It's like, I know God's just telling me. He's telling me something. Usually it has to do with, I need to change the way I'm thinking about something. And I appreciate it. I take that in. I think about it, and I try and react to that, respond to that appropriately. But if I glibly say, God told me, God said to me, it's, then I want to follow up with the conversation. What did that look like? What did that sound like? Is what you're saying consistent with God's word, etc., etc.? So I want to be careful if I say, God showed me, God said to me, God told me. I want to be very careful when I use that phrase. And last, and probably least obvious perhaps, in Jesus' name. Now that should be a given. <laughs> but I'll tell you, it's not. So Jesus said, when you ask anything in my name, so we pray in Jesus' name, right? What does that mean? So a lot of us, we'll just pray, we'll say anything in Jesus' name. And Lord, this, this, that, and that, in Jesus' name. But what is in Jesus' name? What does that mean at all? So really it means something like, I'm praying what Jesus would pray, right? Or what I'm asking God is what Jesus would ask God. Or I'm, I'm writing a check that Jesus would sign. Remember, the name is the person. So it's as if I'm, I'm approaching the Father, and it's as if I'm Jesus before the Father, and I'm saying, Father, this is what we want to do. So a lot of Christians say, in Jesus' name, because they think that's a good thing, and I'm obeying the Bible, but it's not if you're not praying the way Jesus would pray. If you're not asking for the things Jesus would ask for. In Jesus' name means I'm representing Jesus' desires in my request. I'm a stand-in, if you will. Ultimately, we know Jesus is our stand-in before the Father. But the thought of praying in His name is, I'm with Jesus, Jesus is with me when I make this petition in prayer. And a lot of what we pray is not Jesus or God's will. And guys, it's perfectly okay. In fact, it's, it's very biblical. It's what Jesus did. We don't always know what God wants to do, right? There's all kinds of things we pray about. And it's like, Lord, this is what we want. But I don't know what you want to do. And what, do we, what can we pray in that, that reference? So I, I know what I want. So Jesus did that, right? Lord, I'd love not to be crucified. I would love not to, to suffer. I would love for this cup of suffering, propitiation to pass. And how does he end, though? But not my will, your will be done. Guys, that's a great way to pray. Lord, this is what I'd love. This is what I'd like. This is what I'm requesting for someone else. Because as far as I know, that, that would be great. But Lord, I'm not sure what you're up to. And so, Lord, I close with, Lord, your will be done. That's faith. That's not a lack of faith. That's faith. That's Jesus' words. We can do that as well. We want to be careful, though, God said, in Jesus' name, unless that's actually the case. So in what ways might we be attaching vanity to God's name, to Jesus' cause, by what we say? By what we say. By the way, anyone that wants to honor God's name, there's an appropriate way to start honoring God's name. And it's to call on his name. This is Acts 4, verse 12. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Guys, you remember, we're all born in sin, not because our parents aren't lovely people, but because our parents are sinners and they reproduce sinners and we're born distant from God from conception forward. And guys, we live as rebels and it doesn't matter if we're nice people, it doesn't matter if we go to church, it doesn't matter if we're respectful and we look good on the outside. We are rebels at heart, opposed to God and God's will, unless and until we call on Jesus' name for salvation. The place to start bringing honor to Christ's name and to God is to call on Yahweh, Yahweh saves, Jesus, is to call on Jesus for salvation. You cannot bring honor to Christ's name unless and until you do. It's an impossibility because you're a rebel using his name. It doesn't work. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's where we start. That's where honoring Christ's name starts. I call on his name for salvation. Jesus, save me. I get it. I'm a sinner. Everyone knows this, by the way, inherently, whether they admit it. I'm not what I should be. Jesus, save me. That's how we begin to start to bring honor to his name. And by the way, telling others about the gospel, that honors Jesus' name too, right? Telling others, Jesus is real. You owe him your life and breath. You're going to face him as your judge one way or another. Repent. Repent, call on his name, believe in his name, and be saved. We should be doing that. That brings honor to Jesus' name. The church is, in one part at least, remaining on the earth to proclaim Jesus' name as the means of salvation. There's other things God uses us for, but that's a biggie. The third command can be stated positively, and it's in numerous areas, but this is one, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, word or deed, do it in a way that brings honor to Jesus' name. Do and say what Jesus would do and say. Act and speak from the character and the purposes of Christ. And by the way, we cannot do that, can we? Unless we're born again, we have a new nature. You know, Christ is in us, Colossians 1. That's our hope of glory and transformation. But we want to put the old stuff aside, put to death, and then we want to walk in the Spirit, the life of Christ that's in us. Otherwise, this doesn't happen. And when we blow it, and we do, and we will, then we confess our sin, we're restored to fellowship, and we get up and we keep going. That's what we do. If we're following the spirit of the first two commands, if we're refusing idolatry by loving God with all that we are, have, do, and think, then we'll find bringing honor to his name and avoiding vanity a much easier road or task, won't we? If we're following the first two words, the third one is where we want to start. Lord, I don't want to dishonor your name. I want to bring honor to your name because you've got my heart, because I love you, I want to see you honored I want to see you glorified, then it's pretty much a given that I'll be aimed at not bringing vanity and instead honoring God and honoring Christ and all that I do. I want to make a modest proposal here as we wind down related to bringing honor to Jesus' name. Jesus said people would identify us with his name when we demonstrated love for each other. This is John 13. 
If you think of your own life in the church, or you think of Lion and Lamb Church, or you think of the church evangelicalism broadly, how much honor, how much identity do you think we're bringing to Christ's name for ourselves? That is, that we're associated with Jesus because we love each other. Because we love each other. That'd be a good place to start, wouldn't it? That would bring honor to Christ's name if Christians loved each other. How are we doing at that? What you find inevitably, uh, decades ago, Francis Schaeffer said, whatever you see in the world now, it'll be in the church uh, 30 years from now. <clears throat> it's like, no, it's, it's one and then the other. Guys, our culture is imploding. And it's not just here in the States, it's around the world. And it's not just COVID. It's values. It's, it's morality. It's anything related to life or God. It's all, we're, we're meltdown. In the culture today, it's the, it's the cancel culture. You said something I don't like, and I don't like you. I'm, you're canceled. You're gone. I'm blaming you. You know what now too, by the way, you know where all this is? This just means we burn our own house down. That's the, the current culture is we just burn. I'll burn your house down and my house will burn with it and I'll call that good. So it's not just cancel culture, guys. It's blame culture. I'm going to blame you. And by the way, do you know in this culture, it doesn't matter if you apologize because it won't be accepted. Because now you know what the goal is? Vengeance is now the goal. I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to blame you. And when you apologize, I'm going to tell you it's not good enough. I'm going to burn your house down. That's the culture we live in. And guys, that culture is in the church. And the church is imploding around this country now. The Southern Baptists are getting the worst of it if you keep up on any of the news. And I'm not, I have, I'm not a Southern Baptist. I never have been. This is not an advertisement for the Southern Baptists. But I've highly respected the Southern Baptists because they have been consistent for the last several decades in trying to keep the gospel right They've taken courageous stands. They've taken hits. But they're losing membership. They're losing baptisms. They're losing money. They're losing people. They, they, they are, uh, and where a lot of this stuff is, it's racism. It's Black Lives Matter. You're too black. You're not black enough. You're white. You're too white. You're not white enough. It's critical race theory. It's women and feminist issues. And guys, I don't say this that these things are unimportant because they're important. There are issues that you discuss. But none of these are issues of orthodoxy. And none of these are issues that Christians should be dissing and burning down the houses of other Christians over. There are things to talk about absolutely. We disagree on things absolutely. Where's Christ's love? Really, where is Christ's love in all this that's going on today? It's hard to find. It's very hard to find. So we need to pray, Lord, help me love my brothers and sisters so that others see you. It's not ultimately about us. You know, this is something else you see all the time. Um, when something comes up and you say, well, there's this problem uh, with this family in the church, or there's this problem with this little uh, element of the church. It's just those people. It's just that family. And you know what? It never is. Because you know the enemy always uses these things against the church. Because the church is what Jesus said he would build. 
He didn't say he'd build your family or mine. He said he's building his family, the church. The church is always the target. Always. It's a given. So if we're going to bring honor to Christ's name, how about we start with saying, Lord, I want to love my brothers and sisters in the faith in a way that honors you, in a way that reflects your values. There's something else we can do to honor Christ, and it's, it is the fruit of our lips when our hearts are right with him. This is Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And if you know the psalm, it just goes on to list, God, you've done all this for me. You've, you've lifted me up on wings like eagles. you sustained me. You've healed me. Lord, I'm blessing your name for what you've done. Psalm 66, verse 1 and 2 says, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Guys, we can only do this when our hearts are right. When we're loving God and loving others as we know God's called us to, and when we're simply in humility, confessing our sin when we blow it, and repenting and getting back up and starting over. That's a good day. I want to take just a minute. The worship team's going to come up. We're going to read a text in just a minute. But I want to pause for just a minute, and I just want us to reflect for just a minute. And if God brings anything to mind on dissing his name, not being loving to others, I just want us individually to just confess that to God, to cleanse our hearts, and then we will declare with clean hearts, clean hands, God's, God's praise in music, okay? Father, we confess our sins to you, the ways we have not brought honor to your name. Lord, the way we've been less than loving, less than Christ-like towards you or towards each other. Lord, we thank you that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Lord, we thank you for that, that we can stand clean and complete in your sight, faultless with great joy. Help us to experience that cleansing, Lord, each time you bring sin to mind, we confess it and start over. Lord Jesus, thank you that that Yahweh himself came down to save sinners like us, to make us holy ones, saints, your sons and daughters. Help us to aspire nobly to live out of that new identity. In Jesus' name, for Jesus' sake, and his glory, amen. Well, if you would stand and let's read the text is from Philippians 2 related to Jesus and his name. Read with me, please. Being found in human form, he by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.